Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Asa Marshall with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes co-op business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. We're recording in Saskatoon on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. Matt Enright is the general manager of the Battle River Railway Cooperative in Forestburg, Alberta. A local grain farmer, Matt has served as GM since 2015. This new generation cooperative was formed in 2010 when area producers and residents bought the 52-mile stretch of rail from CN. In this episode, Kyle and I talked to Matt about the impact the co-op has had on the region and some of the lessons they've learned along the way. Um, I think Battle River Rail is one of those cool co-op stories that not a lot of people know about. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what led to the creation of Battle River Rail Co-op? Yeah, sure. I, I like how you said that. Whenever I seen, I've went to a few co-op events now in the last year or two. It seems like everyone, everyone at those co-op events knows about Battle River Railway. Um, but if you're not in the co-op circle, I think uh, it, you know, a lot of people, it probably in the area, don't even know that we are a co-op. Um, so what led to our creation? It all started. You have to go back to about 2003 when the last of the elevators on this, the Alliance branch line were shut down. And in response, a group of farmers got together and formed a producer car group, which meant they would coordinate together to order a bunch of cars, trying to get like 50, a block of 50 cars ordered at a time so that CN would bring them cars so that they could load. So these are producers that didn't want to have to haul up to, it would just probably be like the CP main line, which is at that time, the options were probably kill them in Camrose. So, so probably like an hour drive or something with their grain to half an hour to an hour drive, depending uh, where they were situated on the rail line. And that group formed, ran for a few years. And then uh, sometime in like 2007 or eight, CN put the line up for discontinuance, which meant they were going to abandon the line and sell it. But what had what they usually did was it was a scrapper that would buy the line and tear it up. And so the group was already there. They were using the line and they decided we were going to try to buy the rail line and save it and try to operate a business moving our grain on the on the rail line. I, do, I wasn't involved in it, but they decided on the co-op model. I think um, Westlock had been formed right around the same time or just before. So there was kind of some precedent there. And yeah, so they, they were able to raise almost $4 million or no, about $3.5 million from farmers and the general public to wow. purchase the rail line and borrowed, borrowed the balance. It was pretty big feat for, you know, a bunch of farmers that didn't know anything about running a railroad or what a railroad business would look like. Why did you think they chose to structure the business as a co-op? I asked Ken Ashpeter, he's the, like the founder, uh, why? And he didn't really give me a good reason. I didn't think it was, well, cause he likes co-ops and co- there's a lot, a lot of history of co-ops, but I, why it was a, a really good fit uh, is it's, it, we're a new gen co-op. So we have our members and then we have uh, alternative or uh, investment shares. Um, so we have two classes of, of investment shares that the general public could purchase. So, you know, communities, uh, so we have municipalities that, that bought some of those shares. And then we have like lots of friends and family that wanted to see this thing go. They, they bought those shares. 
But the real big way we raised a lot of money was an investment share that only members could purchase. And those were kind of a, a, one rail car that you loaded, you were kind of expected to buy one of these class B delivery shares. Um, and that, that was the bulk of the capital we raised or about half, a little more than half of the capital we raised, um, over $2 million. Uh, and that, so being, being structured that way allowed us to raise the capital because if you wanted to continue shipping your rail cards, you kind of needed to own those shares, or at least it was in your financial interest to own those shares. And then you also had now customers for the rail line that were committed and incentivized to see this thing succeed. And if, if they had just had like 10 big farmers get together and buy the railroad and then try to get farmers to use it, I think they would have had a lot harder time. Um, there's something about supporting other farmers' businesses that it can be seen as a competitive thing rather than a cooperative thing. And we really needed the grain volume at the outset. That was, that was the only business the rail line had for the first couple of years was, was moving grain on, on the line. And uh, little as they knew about starting a rail line, they knew they needed income to both pay pay their mortgage payments for one and uh, and the operating costs. You've mentioned, I mean, the co-op had an immediate impact for farmers, but what broader impact does the co-op have on the region. Um, maybe 20 years ago, had the co-op not been created and that they didn't buy the, the rail line, what do you think the community be missing out on? Well, if, if the co-op hadn't been formed, I'm quite certain the rail line would not exist anymore. The The second place bidder was a was a scrap company. So if the, the physical infrastructure would not exist. And that with that, all the, you know, I call it, talk about optionality. Uh, that the the infrastructure brings. We've been able to build a good business here. We employ like 10 full-time equivalents. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of employment in our communities that wouldn't be there. There's a lot of return on investment that wouldn't have been there. Um, you mentioned a lot of like returns to our farmers in 2013 and 14 harvest years, there was a severe lack of capacity in Western Canada to move grain. And us being here, we were we were returning like doll, over a dollar a bushel to farmers when they lo loaded their rail cars. Like most farmers who invested in a rail line, essentially got earned that money back in those two years, um, just on the increased grain pricing they they received over those over those two years. But then back to like the infrastructure being here gives us potential. In other communities that have lost their rail lines, it's not going to come back. It would It's too expensive to build rail. Um, it's still kind of expensive to maintain rail, but it's, <laughs> it's much more expensive to build rail. And by not having access to rail, it increases the cost of doing business for certain bulk commodities. So, you know, it makes it harder to, to build new windmills, uh, to export new products that are, that are coming about. You know, not that we've been super successful in finding new products to move yet, but there's a lot of, there's irons in the fire and there's potential uh, to build something here. I mean, you make, you make it sound, when you were talking about the creation of the co-op, you make it sound kind of easy. You know, we raised $4 million. We got balance in, in a loan, just shoulder tap some friends and family. Um, I, I'm willing to bet it probably wasn't that easy. And if you were to look back, 
at the co-op's startup and operations, are there some things that you go back and do differently knowing what you know now? We definitely would have structured our co-op differently and been more choosy on on who we let in as members. We would probably would have been more demanding that you can't just be a member. You probably also have to buy some investment shares when it, when it comes around to it. We basically, how our co-op was set up was that all members have an equal share in the book value of our of our co-op. And if if they want to leave the co-op, they can. They're free to do so. And they can get their, it was like one 150th or, you know, like of, of the book equity back. So when there's no book equity, it doesn't seem like it's a problem. Or like when you haven't made any money, it's not a problem for them to take their thousand dollars back. But once you, if you're successful, which we end up being successful, I don't think, I don't think anybody in the entire organization would have with a straight face thought that we could be as, as successful as we have been financially anyways. I mean, their community builder and stuff like that. I think people thought, yes, we could, there's potential for that, but um, we would have structured it differently because we end up with a lot of members who bought their thousand dollar membership share and kind of forgot that they were members in, in the co-op. So we would have been more choosy on that front. But you know, at the same time, beggars can't be choosers either. So we were we really wanted every dollar we could we could raise at the outset. And uh so that that's the main one. We ended up doing a restructure here in 2020, uh, so that um we we froze the froze the value of our members. And now you can only grow equity in the co-op by doing business with us. And in, the more invested you are with us, the faster you can grow your equity. That's a very succinct and simple way of putting it. I mean, I think that's a really good tip because one of the questions we get asked a lot when we're working with startups is, you know, who should be on our steering committee? What kind of skills do we need on the steering committee? And really the the, the best people you can possibly have are people who are willing to invest time and money and stick with the co-op. And that's true for a, you know, a small community-based organization as well as a multi-million dollar you know, capital intensive operation yeah. like a line. Yeah, we we never would have got where we are uh, without Kenesh Peters' kind of leadership and fearlessness. It was uh, it was a real champion, a real vocal champion mm -hmm. of the project. Buying a hard asset really helps. Something you know that exists that's there. That if we do fail at this, we still have something that we own that we can use to pay back the money that, that people have invested in the rail line um, that helped. But then, you know, there was, there's a number of like, not just Ken, but your initial board members and not even just board members. We had other committed farmers along the way that were, didn't sit on the board, but like real leaders in the communities that saw the value here and, and stepped up. So mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't just dreamers that were on board with this. It was real actual respected businessmen in the communities. Well, it, it it sounds like the way that the organization was built was also very clever or smart, I should say. Um, and this is true, I think, of, of, of most new gen co-ops that I've seen. Westlock Terminals, I think, does this well as well. The North American Bison Co-op also did this pretty smart. They they The way they put out their share structure really incentivizes investment and that long-term use of the co-op. And it sounds like you guys tried that up front, but then it had that restructuring really helped drive that home. Um, is there anything on that you'd recommend other folks 
think about that are maybe starting down a similar path as a co-op? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the if you need to raise capital, you need to have it tied to tied to your customer some way. That if that's what a co-op is. But so I often think of like where my initial thoughts of co-ops were like everyone puts in 10 bucks uh, or a hundred bucks or whatever. And that's your little seed money. And then you go do something and people, you know, it's just not enough to, to tie you to financially to, to be invested, you know, both materially and emotionally, and you know, time-wise into, into the success of a startup. So, and that's really what we were as a startup. And that's um, when you, I don't think many people think co-op and startup in the same in the same vernacular, but it's really a quite a good way uh, of aligning people's interests in the co-op it's or in the business and having also more of a democratic way of doing it. You can have like, if it's just, if it's a founder that really needs to drive the business and okay, maybe that's more of a corporation, but when you have a broad base that needs to all pull together, that's I think a better, better, well-suited for, for a co-op Westlock would, would have been like that um, ourselves very much. So reminded me of a thought I had about, uh, it was actually, we're talking about doing our restructuring and I was talking to John Montgomery up there and he's, he mentioned like how there, there's never any equity in the business because it's generally gets passed on to the, to the owners, right. Through, through patronage. And that's something else so important when you're thinking about a business is, is how you're going to allocate equity to to your members um and 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 how they can access that and that equity is not the same thing as cash mm -hmm. for for a business um and you can't hopefully hopefully you have a profitable business and you're building equity but yet you have to be able to maintain enough cash around so that that you can still invest in your business and uh and keep your investors happy i guess would be would be one way to put it and that, so for us, we're very capital heavy business. We, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of uh, investment that was needed to purchase the line and then to maintain it and, and grow. So we've added, we now own four locomotives. We have, we bought three grain elevators on our rail line. Our balance sheet is, has grown quite a bit over time. And you wouldn't be able to do that if all your earnings were always leaving the co-op generally corporations aren't set up where all their profits leave every year i've had experience with privately held corporations as well they're best when they have a defined exit strategy as well uh how an investor can get their money out mm -hmm. and and what you do with with any equity that's been built over over time those are things that are very important to consider and i don't think we did that very well at the outset there was oh, a co-op. Yeah, co-op is a good fit for us. And yeah, it did allow us to raise the money. But but there wasn't a lot of forethought as to how we were going to be able to continue to function uh, through like a generational change or, or having to cash out those those initial investors. Yeah, interesting. So interesting. Because again, this is something we work with every day with other groups. It's interesting to hear crossover, different size of businesses, different industries. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I did want to know, we've mentioned Ken Eschbeter a few times. He's such a cool guy. Uh, I got to meet him first for the first time when I also met you, Matt. And he was asked, why did they structure it as a co-op? And yeah, his answer was very much, ah, 
there's co-ops all over the place in ag. <laughs> you know, they got your, your co-op store, you got UFA, you've got the seed cleaning co-ops, you got REAs. It's, why not? We'll just do a co-op for it. And I, yeah, I agree. Especially in Alberta, you've got co-ops all over the place supporting primarily agricultural communities. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, maybe looking to the future and noting some of the changes in ag, what other opportunities do you see for agricultural co-ops? So Ken is a big picture dreamer, and but yet he was, you know, he's a force of nature as well. So he was able to like really push this forward. And I, and that, that's a good example of how Ken thinks he's just, you know, well, yeah, it's just, just do it. Or it's just, that's the way it's going to be. Um, and Matt, you go figure out how to make it happen sort of, sort of thing. But that's, it takes somebody like Ken to get this thing started because a person like me, I'm very much at the practical side of things. I see what is rather than what can be. And I'm very good at, I think I'm very good anyways, at like taking what is and making it incrementally better. But I have a difficult time imagining an, a different framework of of what what's possible, I guess. At the conference we were at, Mark Andre talked yeah. about uh, potentially like a co-op based grain company in Western Canada. And uh, I think there's, there's an opportunity for that. There is a tremendous amount of mistrust, I think would be a good way to put it between farmers and grain companies. There are a lot of farmers see it as a, a zero sum game. They're trying to win. The business would be better suited to have a, a more of a collaborative approach to it, which we kind of get with, with some of our farmers, it, but because we're not the company buying and selling the grain, we do that on behalf of another grain company. It's a little different. So the, the, if I had to pick something, I would probably say uh, like a, a grain company that is cooperatively owned. And, uh, you know, I came into farming pretty much just after the, the pools had, had went away and it seemed like cooperative grain companies are dirty. It's a dirty word. What didn't end well, I don't think. And there's lots of probably good reasons why it didn't end well. And Lots of lessons to be taken from that to apply to our particular uh, iteration of a of a farmer owned co op. To importance of stay, staying in your lane. Uh, you know, we're going to run a railroad here. We're not going to go invest in in other community ventures. You know, like I can remember board meetings where when Ken would say like, you know, we're, we're making money now. We're going to go help build other things in our communities with with that money, and I was very much around the lines of like, no, let's, let's stay focused on our business here and what we're here to do. And then governance would be the other, the other thing when you, I don't know how true it is, but I think of like co-ops can sometimes get so much, they get a whole bunch of equity on their, on their balance sheet that no one has a true claim to. And that there's a disconnect then between running a good business and just doing having free financing for your for your business that doesn't need to be run in a disciplined sort of manner then there's no one gonna come crack the whip on management if they aren't being disciplined because oh you know we already you know we don't have any debt we don't have you know so so if we don't make as much money as we could have oh well no big deal and you know in a little bit that's okay but if that gets built in to the culture of your of your organization over time you don't have a you don't have a good business anymore mm -hmm. and those are lessons i think i can, can mm -hmm. take you didn't ask me about that but that's where i went 
No, I mean, that's that, again, that's good advice. Again, mm-hmm. I think startups need to consider that early on and through the life cycle of their co-op. But I do want to pick up what, some of the themes I think you were getting at and some of those examples of potential for ag co-ops and what Marc-Andre was hinting at is I mean, the nature of the ag industry is changing. It's getting bigger. It's pushing smaller players out. And that's having a big effect on smaller communities. So maybe what kind of advice would you give to other communities that are facing the same kind of threats that the Battle River region was facing um, to their local infrastructure? A big lesson that I've taken from our kind of endeavor here is how, how important local ownership and local control of important pieces of your community are. A lot of towns are waiting on that white knight to come in and save them, bring the jobs. They're just gotta, we, we just gotta get the next big company to come in and invest in our communities and we'll be saved. And really we need to, to look at the opportunities that are, are here ourselves and take control of them. Um, Ken, again, because we keep talking about Ken, I remember him saying, can you believe those assholes at CN made us buy this rail line? And I would always say, Ken, that was the best thing that ever happened to the communities and this rail line. If this rail line was still owned by CN, it would be dilapidated. There wouldn't be any dollars spent on it. There'd be no business development happening on it. And it would be an eyesore. And it would there would be nobody locally working on this rail line. And here we've, we've got a beautiful asset. We've got employees. We've, there's a lot of investment income coming back to the communities. And there's a lot of potential for future growth here. And that wouldn't have happened if the local people hadn't got together and taken control of the situation. You could try and attract a different short line railway operator to come in and buy it. And we'll give them some tax incentives or something like that. Well, what would happen at the end of the day? If they were unsuccessful in building a business here, you're back at square one. You're not in control. And this infrastructure is vital to the success of your communities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you that infrastructure goes away, it's just another nail in your local community. And I do think of broadband as a similar aspect. And I think there would probably be a really good business case for a broadband co-op uh, setup in a lot of these towns. Like Starlink is maybe solving that problem somewhat, but like really for the first 10 years of our existence, Broadband is a big problem for us to be able to run our business properly. And there's no solutions. And really maybe, you know, in hindsight, I wish I would have uh, known more about computers or been more interested in that sort of endeavor, because I think there's a really good opportunity there, but broadband as infrastructure, rail line, rail lines, obviously infrastructure, right? Like when you think of infrastructure, you probably think of road rail and stuff like that, but infrastructure is stuff that makes doing business easier and cheaper. And they're generally longer term investments. So, you know, you're not going to lay broadband wires across the prairies, but you can be at least in control because say today, these private companies that are here providing broadband or even Starlink that's providing broadband, they could decide that it's not profitable to provide this service anymore. And we're, we're screwed then we, we can't continue to well, always find, you always find a way, but like it's, it would really impact our ability to run our business, attract new businesses to our area. And those things, local control matters so much. Well, I'd like to note something you said a bit earlier too, uh, Matt, about factors that have been a success in your co-op that I think would be good tips for others who listen to this and who are interested in starting cooperatives. 
I think is that combination of you and Ken, when you've talked about Ken having like the big picture dreamer part of the equation, and then you being more like practical nuts and bolts person. I think when we're talking about who should you have in your steering committee, that sounds like a really winning combination for groups that if they're wanting to start a co-op, they kind of need both of those parts. The PO, the and I'll be dreamers, sure. but you do need the dreamer to like see what's possible too. And like, I came into this later and like this at GM since 2015 kind of involved or relatively involved for the first number of years, but really like there's a lot of other names that I could say like that were very instrumental on the, the doing part for the first number of years. Our board was, it was and continues to be completely uh, volunteer. And it was very much a working board for the first two or three years of our existence. They were the ones who did everything. They, they got trained to be conductors, volunteered their times to, to run the trains. They did locomotive maintenance to what they could anyways, you know, and then, and they learned how to maintain the rail line too. So it took, takes at least, you know, somebody to have that vision and then probably a lot of people to be willing to do the, do the hard work that, that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you can't volunteers also have a shelf life. They, they, they run out of stamina. Um, one thing uh, when we we're raising the money too, is it was worked in our favor is that we had a deadline. We needed to get this done by a certain time. It wasn't this idea that, that we're just floating out there. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we can raise this money and, and be able to purchase the rail line? It's like, no, you either, you either got to raise the money by this date or it's done. So everyone felt the need to get to work and to, you know, pony up, pony up when it came time to invest, which I think can be, it's, I don't know if it's just human nature or what, but deadlines matter. Thank you for joining us. For more on us and what we do, visit cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own co-op, check out coopcreator.com. It's a great resource site that has everything you need to get a co-op up and running. To give us your thoughts on anything we discussed in this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter as coops underscore first.